So it's really been a dramatic transformation of life as a neurosurgeon in New York City. And I'm not kidding when I say the practice of neurosurgery in Manhattan has been just completely overturned. The truth is, what we can provide to society in the context of this pandemic is extremely limited. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Okay, welcome to today's episode of the Neurosurgery Podcast. This is another entry in our series covering the coronavirus crisis here in the States. Um, today, we have the great honor and privilege of being joined by Dr. Ted Schwartz, who's a professor of neurosurgery at Cornell University. Uh, Dr. Schwartz, welcome to the podcast. JP, thanks so much. Um, obviously, I, I know you well from the, the time I spent as a sub-I there at Cornell for a month. I'm working in the department, but for some of our listeners who, who don't know you, could you introduce yourself, just give a little brief background? Uh, sure. So uh, first, I just want to say I'm really appreciative of the opportunity to speak. I actually listen to this podcast often during my commutes to uh, work in the morning. So you and Mike are doing a fantastic job. Um, so I'm at Cornell. Uh, I'm a professor of neurosurgery and uh, started out neurosurgery really with a passion for epilepsy and brain tumors, and that sort of morphed over time into a career that's focused on brain tumors, and in particular, minimally invasive skull base and pituitary tumors, and, and sort of the general concept of advancing the goals of minimally invasive intracranial neurosurgery. And that's something we definitely want to get into with this episode, because I know you do a lot of endoscopic endonasal surgery, and that's uh, become a an issue of you know great concern with the coronavirus uh, going on. But before we get into that level of detail with your practice, why don't you give us just a, a general overview from day zero to today for how things began and kind of unfolded to to get us to your current situation there in the hospital. So it's really been a dramatic transformation of life as a neurosurgeon in New York City. Uh, when this all started, I don't think anyone really appreciated where this was going and how quickly it was going to spread and how quickly it was going to transform our lives. And I'm not kidding when I say the practice of neurosurgery in Manhattan has been just completely overturned uh, to the point where most of us are worried we're going to get called in to start working in the ICU or in the ER. Uh, we're learning about vent settings again. I just listened to an hour-long lecture on on how to do you know appropriate ARDS treatments with your vent settings. Uh, one of our attendings has already gotten called in to work in the emergency room. Several of our residents have been redeployed to ICUs in different places in the organization. And the fear of surgery and what is it what is it mean to do surgery on someone who's COVID positive? And, and do we have enough tests? And do we have enough 
PPE uh, has been just a constant source of conversation and consternation uh, as we change what it is we do, how we feel about ourselves, how we view ourselves as surgeons, as healthcare providers. It's been dramatic. It's been dramatic. And I, you know, I can go into more detail with every aspects of that, but, but my life has been completely overturned. Ted, now you you are on the ground there, and most of our listeners, of course, don't live in the New York area. You know, you see these reports, and if you read the New York Times, uh, some of the reports, we don't know if they're exaggerated, we don't know if they're sensationalized, but they seem like a, a true crisis situation. I mean, beyond the sort of uh, sheltering at home, I mean, in terms of what's actually happening in the hospital. Can you give us some insight as to, you know, is it really that bad, or is that certain patches, or is it maybe a little bit exaggerated. Give us some insight on that today. And, and by the way, let's just say that this is March uh, 28, 2020. We know the situation's fluid and could change, right, for the better or worse. Yeah. So the, the, the bottom line is it's, it's really bad. You know, honestly, it's really bad. Uh, we get reports every day of the number of people admitted to the ED, the number of people on ventilators, the number of ventilators we have available uh, with updates constantly, and the numbers just keep going up and up and up. And our healthcare providers are stressed and stretched. To be honest with you, I almost feel like I'm unqualified to speak to this to some extent because I'm not in the ER and I'm not in the ICU, but all of our entire neuro ICU is a COVID ICU. The whole hospital has entire floors that are now devoted to nothing but COVID treatment. And all the residents are doing nothing but taking care of COVID patients. And the healthcare providers are getting sick. We have inadequate PPE to protect them. Uh, we're extremely worried about aerosolizing the virus and viral load and intubations and how that's going to affect the healthcare uh, workers uh, in our city. And until we reach a plateau, we're all in fear that we are all going to get called in to the front lines to try to control this pandemic, and it is not unrealistic. We're talking about putting two patients on one ventilator at this point and working out techniques for doing that. Uh, everybody is on chloroquine, azithromycin. You know, we're doing some trials, but there's definitely a sense of desperation. Uh, there's a sense of information being critical, people not always being perfectly informed as to what the latest is because the latest changes constantly. It's amazing the way I will get, you know, five or six emails in a day, each of which will completely change the guiding principles of how we're treating patients in the hospital and what our responsibilities are going to be. Wow. I mean, listening to you describe what it's like in the hospital now, you know, we're, we're talking to people in different cities around the country as part of the series. We're talking to people in different nations around the world. And just hearing your experience there in New York compared to some other locations, um, you know, I'm sure our listeners, our, our hearts go out to you. That's um, That doesn't sound like an environment that anyone would want to work in, but obviously the patients are there and, and, and they need care. Um, kind of moving from the, the hospital as a whole, let's focus in on the neurosurgery department. What is the, the practice of neurosurgery like now for you in this environment? So the way it works is we have uh, a meeting uh, once a day where people will present a case that they think is an emergency case, right? Because 
there are no elective cases going on. We're, we're trying to do some telemedicine for outpatient visits, um, but there are very few new patients coming in, uh, some follow-ups going on. But we're, we are open for business through telemedicine. But if you want a case to be done, it gets presented to a committee. The committee decides if this is a case that is an emergency or not, or if this can wait even a week, we would put it off. Initially, we were able to make that decision on our own and maybe do two cases a day. But now there's a second committee that is formed that is not run by neurosurgery that then takes the recommendations from the neurosurgery committee and says, well, yes, we agree or no, we don't. So we have a patient who came in last night with a large uh, left temporal uh, glioblastoma, a lot of mass effect, edema, patient's 86 years old. So we discussed whether we could present this to have surgery or not. And we all decided that, yes, this surgery probably should be done within the next two days, but it's not in our hands. We're gonna pass it on to another committee and that committee can easily say, no, we're not gonna let you do it. It's not gonna be change her quality of life or her life expectancy enough under these dire circumstances that we're gonna allow you to do that surgery. Ted, how, I mean, how does that feel? I mean, we're so used to having autonomy and being the apex predator or the alpha in the room. And now, now you're describing a situation where you're advocating for your patients, of course, and to some degree it's in a, it is in a very different context, right? You are working in a different system here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's what's been important is the the change in in sort of checking your ego at the door, if you will. You know that uh, we're all as neurosurgeons feel like, as you've said on this uh, podcast, we're the Navy SEALs. We want to think of ourselves that way. We'll do anything we can for our patients. We want to make the decisions in the OR. We want to be the captains of the ship. But the truth is. What we can provide to society in the context of this pandemic is extremely limited. And, you know, you almost feel superfluous. You feel like, you know, your specialty is not needed at this moment in time. And, and the truth is, it's absolutely true. I mean, my hat goes off to the, the ER doctors, the ICU doctors. They're the real heroes right now, the healthcare system. Um, and we're, we should be here to support them. You know, the, the number of neurosurgeons that we really need right now is extremely limited. And our skills are better off being used elsewhere, you know, until we can get through this crisis, given the lack of resources that we have. So what, what's, the, what's the sense um, there in the city and there in your hospital about where you are in the course of all of this? Does it, does it feel like you've plateaued yet or does it still feel... Uh, day by day that, you know, things are getting worse or things are expanding? Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, the numbers, there's no question the number of ICU beds being utilized, the number of ED patients, uh, intubated patients is going up day by day. That has not plateaued. We hold out like every last bit of hope. Like we have a resident who is at one of our hospitals who did his first shift in an ER out in Queens and three patients died that night. Wow. And the next night, the next night, nobody died last night. And so an email went around saying, hey, nobody died last night. Like maybe we can hold out some hope or the, the, the slope of the graph of the number of new patients intubated last night was slightly flatter than the day before. And we were all sort of hanging on that and saying, you know, maybe things are getting a little better. But the truth is, we have no idea. We don't, we don't, the peak is supposed to come in another two weeks and the the thought of this getting incrementally worse for two more weeks, honestly, is horrifying. It's really horrifying. 
Ted, on an earlier podcast, uh, we had discussed some things about our dual roles and, and um, an administ- not an administrator, but a physician approached me with the issue of, you know, you neurosurgeons are technically uh, certified in intensive care, right? That's a very unique hallmark of what we do. And one of the reasons we're so valued and paid so well that we are technically able to run our own ICUs. And the question came up, you know, would you be willing to cover the ICU? I, I of course, said yes. And even in our department, there's been a lot of controversy. Some of the older guys, Roberto Harris, are like, no, we have to lead from the front. We should be willing to volunteer and round and do the things that are asked of us by society. Of course, he lived through the Cold War and the Bay of Pigs and all that. Yeah. And then some of the other attendings have been very much like, I don't want to go to the hospital, right? And I, I will say that, uh, I, I won't name names, but there are definitely a lot of our attendings who are like, I don't want to go. I'm not going to be part of this. And Tell us a little bit about what's going on at the local level without naming names. And then I do want to get back to this issue for the people who want the wonkiness of it, what you're learning about ventilator management so they could get a little bit of a crash course. So what's going on in, in terms of the logistics inside of neurosurgery? Right now? Yeah. So, you know, it, I think the, the first email probably went out about 10 days ago that was from the hospital and it said, where would you be willing to work or prefer to work? And it gave a list of ER ICU floor or administrative. And I was kind of laughing at that email. And I thought to myself, like, we all want to write administrative. Like, that's that's where I would be useful, right? But, you know, obviously, that's the wrong answer. And it's not why we went into medicine. It's not who we are. And so I personally, I wrote back, I will go wherever you put me, wherever you think I'm best needed, I will go. And that just felt like the right answer to give. And, and I will say, you know, I've, I've got a bunch of partners, we talk Every day, you know, once a day we're talking together and everybody is totally committed to doing whatever it needs to take to get through this. Like that is our first priority. And I think it's that attitude of, um, you know, being willing to sacrifice yourself for a greater good. And I mean, I think that's why most of us went into medicine. Uh, And I think that's where most of our hearts lie. And, uh, you know, people say your true character comes out in a crisis. Uh, And I've been very impressed with all my partners at Cornell and and how it's been handled. But um, obviously, until someone gets assigned to the ER or assigned to the ICU and told to wear a bandana to protect yourself, you know, that's when your true character comes out. Because being saying you're willing to do it and actually showing up are two very different things. And, God, you know, I hope that doesn't happen. You know, one of the big issues is PPE and protection, right? So, you know, are you willing to work in the ICU with an N95 mask is one question. Are you willing to work in the ICU with a bandana is another question. And right now, you know, we have one N95 that they're handing out per person working at the hospital wow. so that everyone gets one. And, you know, I recently went on a, a, a rampage trying to raise N95 masks, and I've talked to tons of people to try to get donations and brought in a bunch to the hospital and I'm, I'm waiting for another supply to come by my house that I can bring by the uh, the OR and the ER. But I mean, that's a terrifying concept. That's what scares me the most is, you know, having inadequate protection and having to work. So tell us a little bit for a crash course. There may be people listening in rural areas of America or in parts of the world that they don't get the kind of information we want. And by the way, the AANS is putting together a webinar on this, on uh, maybe ventilator management uh, for neurosurgeons, like a refresher. But tell us the kind of things they're teaching you in this this, uh, course you just went to. Yeah. So this was one hour of listening to a Zoom lecture. And the truth is, it was mostly for the residents. And a couple of attendings were listening. And I 
I did listen in. I am not an expert. And truthfully, for me to be giving advice on something like this um, would be mismanagement. I really don't want to do that. But it, it has to do with these questions of, you know, where do, where do you want your PEEP to be? How high do you want your PEEP to go? Um, you know, the patients I learned for the first time have to be prone. It's preferable if they're prone and not supine. This is right, really ARDS. Right. It's ARDS vent management and balancing, you know, your, your O2 sats and your PF ratios and putting them in what they call permissive hypercapnia with a pH greater than three and balancing off the, the height of the patient and the weight of the patient and where you should have all the, the tidal volumes because um, often the, you know, it needs to be a little higher than you want. So all of those numbers, I'm by far not an expert on, and I need to study it. You know, just because I listened to it once and took some notes does not make me an expert, but that's the kind of stuff that we're all going to have to go back and start to learn again you know, in much more detail. Wow. Now, now, Dr. Schwartz, I mean, with this discussion about, you know, sacrifice and, and getting out on the front lines and the shortages in equipment, um, I, you know, I almost worry to ask, but has anyone in the department uh, been exposed at this point? Have you had any cases w- within the neurosurgical family there? Yeah, there, there have been a couple of uh, neurosurgery attendings uh, for sure who have gotten uh, COVID. They're all fine. They all had mild symptoms. Some of them are even back to working now. So um, there have not been any you know, tragedies or disasters uh, within our family. Um, I've heard of stories of some people at uh, other related New York Presbyterian institutions who are on ventilators, surgeons who did certain uh, procedures and maybe had inadequate protection and get very sick. And I, I mean, I think that's something we should focus on. And that's what I'd really like to talk about is you know, this question of exposure and viral load, I've been reading a bunch of papers about the fact that it's not just that you get exposed, but it's at the moment you get exposed, how much virus do you get exposed to? Right. What's the degree of that first inoculation? And will it overwhelm your immune system, even if you have a relatively good immune system and, and minimal comorbidities? And if you're doing a surgery, and, and we should talk a little bit about transplantal surgery, and I had a particular experience that was kind of insane with respect to that, that I would love to relay. But not just transplantal surgery, but any surgery, even laparoscopic surgery, and more and more information is coming out that any cavity that you're exposing, you know, has the risk of aerosolizing the virus and uh, giving a large load to everybody in the OR who is not adequately protected. And it's terrifying to think about that. And you hear stories about all the healthcare workers abroad uh, and surgeons abroad who got incredibly sick, uh, more sick than they would have with just a, a small exposure. So the transphenoidal situation was, you know, I actually last week on Thursday uh, did a transphenoidal surgery on a woman who was losing vision uh, from a recurrent craniopharyngioma. And I did that surgery. I did another surgery. I came home and suddenly I looked down at my phone and it was exploding with emails and Twitters about the danger of transphenoidal surgery and how it just came out. There was a surgery in China and Wuhan mm-hmm. where they uh, did a transphenoidal as an adenoma. 14 people were exposed and four people died, you know, which terrified me. And I had just done this transphenoidal surgery. So I called up and made a bunch of phone calls and I said, look, can we get this woman tested? Can I at least know that she's negative? And the answer was, well, probably not. You know, the, the hospital would not say that we can use a test on, a, on an asymptomatic woman. Now, they ended up testing this woman anyway. You know, you can make, you know, people who are come to bat for you uh, and help you out and get, get her tested. And she was negative. 
But then I got another phone call literally within a minute of hanging up the phone of an apoplexy case at an outside hospital that they wanted to transfer in for surgery. And I now realized that a patient was coming in from a community hospital with a transphenoidal that had to go, uh, and I didn't know what to do. And I advocated to bring the patient in with the idea that if we can do it and get her tested before surgery, because I knew there weren't enough N95s at that point, that maybe we can get the tests done. And it went back and forth with negotiations until the hospital actually said, we're not transferring in any patients from any outside hospitals. You can only transfer from NYP to NYP. So I actually has had to say no to transferring in a tra this transphenoidal, which was hard for me. You know, this is obviously what I do. I don't want to say no to a patient who wants to come in and have this surgery done. Um, but for the, the 12, 24 hours that I was waiting to find out that that first patient didn't have uh, COVID was terrifying. Yeah because I thought I had gotten some enormous exposure. There I was drilling into the nasal mucosa, aerosolizing all of her virus. I had no idea what the exposure to me was. You know, I was told my wife about this. She was stressed out till that came back. And it, you know, it was obviously a very uncomfortable situation. So I think what's, what's come out over time um, is that, you know, the hospital's um, point of view, you know, obviously they have a lot on their mind, right? They're they're worrying about people dying in their ICUs and all their healthcare workers dying and their patients dying and not having enough uh, PPE and not enough tests. And, you know, they, they will not guarantee us that all pre-op patients can get tested and that every surgeon can get an N95. They don't have the equipment to say that, yes, we can do that. And so to some extent, you have to take it into your own hands. You know, you have to find the N95 mask for yourself for everyone in that operating room who you're operating with to make sure they're protected because they're relying on you to help them and to know what they need to do. Uh, and some patients have been able to get uh, COVID tests as inpatients uh, before some procedures, others have not. Uh, and we're just trying to figure out how to make this work. But I think it, the, the important take home message is that we can't go into surgery lightly. We can't go into surgery on a patient that's potentially COVID positive without adequate protection without trying to get them tested beforehand if we can, and if not, then use some sort of universal precautions. The other thing we've learned is how to reuse these N95s. Apparently, if you put the N95 on and you cover it with another surgical mask, then the outside of the mask may not get as infected, and so then you can reuse it again. And now, on the floors, they're actually found a way to sterilize the N95s, so they're leaving them in little bags, and they can um, get sterilized and then reused by the same person the next day. And all this information is literally changing day by day. Wow. Um, you know, yeah, things are changing daily here as well, but it's it's both harrowing but fascinating to hear um, what what things are being done there in, in the hospitals in New York City, you know, as, as you say, evolving day by day. Um, looking outside of the hospital, Dr. Schwartz, can you give us a picture of what's li uh, what life is like there in the city? I mean... Just this morning in the news, I'm seeing stories about the president discussing potentially declaring a, a general quarantine for the city. What, what's it like living there right now outside of work? I live in the suburbs, right? So I'm, you know, a good half an hour drive outside the city, just about. And in the suburbs, people are in their houses and nobody's interacting with anybody else. People are taking walks outside. Uh, so, you know, trying to get some exercise, uh, it is very difficult to be cooped up in an apartment in the city. Yeah. 
and I know a lot of people are trying to rent houses in the suburbs just so they can have a backyard uh, to go to. My, one of my friends who is the most uh, sort of crazed by all this is a guy who has a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And he literally says he wakes up at 5.30 in the morning and he plays seven hours of peekaboo. You know, he goes, it's, it's crazy because he has no babysitter that can come in. There's no break from the children. So people are at home with their kids 24-7 entertaining them. And it's, it's very, very stressful for, for the people living under those circumstances. Ted, it sounds like it's absolutely harrowing. Uh, our hat is off to you. I think you've brought us some excellent points. Uh, I think this issue of viral load on initial exposure is an important one, too. And, and we certainly hope you and your, your friends and family and the faculty at Cornell can hold up through these tough times. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thanks for being on the show. Again, my heart goes out to you and the department there. Um, I, I had a wonderful time when I was with you all. So please stay safe and keep doing the, the good work that you do. Uh, thanks again for being on the podcast. Anytime. Keep us informed, Ted. Keep us informed of anything that's going to happen and any discoveries or, or um, incidences you, you, you find there locally. We'd love to have you back on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.